Welcome to the DTP podcast for January 2023, volume 60. Number one, my name is David Fazakli and I'm DTP's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Um, first of all, we'd like to wish you a, a very happy new year and to thank you for listening to our podcast. In this issue, we're going to talk about the content of January's DTB. Uh, before we get into that, James, anything you'd like to say or any topic you'd like to cover? Yeah, I think we ought to just mention um, sodium valproate. There's been another sort of, I suppose it's a warning from the Commission on Human Medicines, the CHM, that they're planning to put additional safety measures in place for valproate-containing medicines in the coming months, sometime in 2023. And this is, as I'm sure we're all aware out there, they introduced um, a pregnancy prevention program, I think about 2018 now, uh, because of a huge concern of teratogenic problems with valproate and the high risk of congenital um, malformations. And I think for whatever reason, they've been concerned that there is still, I think they noted in the last report, in September 2022, that about 17 female patients are being prescribed Valproate in a month when they were pregnant. Um, so I think because of that, they are putting together a, another group to look at how they can tighten up the prescribing of Valproate. So we've had, I mean, as you say, this has been going on for a long time with various um, alerts from MHRA, uh, various um, reminders to prescribers to pharmacists or whatever to have systems in place to to make sure that it isn't being prescribed or at least all the safety measures are it just shows how long it takes to get these things into into clinical practice and to make changes happen the fact that we're still seeing problems yeah i think it's it's odder than that actually david it's it's a really odd system this I and mean, we we prescribe a lot of dangerous drugs the dmards for example things like methotrexate and our systems are very good at shouting at us now and, you know, and not just listing the issues, but actually saying, do not go, you know, you have to tick this box if you want to issue this and, you know, and cross your heart twice. And and for some reason, Valproate hasn't gone down that line. Now, whether it's because it's prescribed or, or started in secondary care, but then so are DMARDs. I, I don't quite know why it doesn't, they're not simply making it harder for me as a GP to prescribe. There should be a thing that comes up and says, is this patient part of a pregnancy prevention program? Are the documents in the notes? You cannot go further until you tick the box to say that they are. Um, you know, that sort of level of, of an issue, because I think, we, you know, one of the issues perhaps here, and I, I don't know what the background is to those 17 women, but if it's perhaps that this drug was being used off-label for some other condition, then it may be that that's where things slipped up. I don't know, but it just seems odd to me that they haven't been more IT savvy and actually used IT as our friend in this situation. I mean, certainly that, that would cover majority of general practice, wouldn't it? Because most prescriptions are going to have to be generated via your clinical systems. Obviously, it doesn't necessarily cover, because I don't know um, how that would work, in a specialist setting. So if you're a, a consultant seeing a patient, um, either in outpatients or uh, in, in a hospital setting, whether that would, would have the same effect. But yes, you're right. Why aren't we making sure that the, there's a, a button that says you cannot go beyond this part when you, when yeah. you try and yeah, describe yeah. it? The other thing I was going to say, just picking up on that latest 
piece of information from MHRA, which only came out last week, uh, which has probably taken, I think, both of us a little bit by surprise, which is the mention of, of men for the what I think the first time in, the, in this guidance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, I thought, has this passed me by? But um, they're talking about um, the recommendation that no patients, male or female, under the age of 55 years should be initiated on Valparate. Um, unless, you know, you go through the PP, the Pregnancy Prevention Programme, um, as planned. And if you look at the SPC for sodium valproate there, right down, um, as you found for me, a couple of lines suggesting that it can cause infertility in men. Um, but it was not something that I've clocked, I'll be honest with you, over 30 years of, of prescribing. And that, I think that's been there a while in, in the SPC, but you see, it, it, it passed us by. Um, and, and the MHRA notification says uh, the review considered data for other potential risks, including uh, the impact on, on male fertility um, and the evidence that you know, it is reversible on discontinuation. But, but as you say, the, the requirement to have it signed off by um, two clinicians applies to both men and women now. Exactly. And and just it, it's an infertility issue as far as I can tell. It's not that a man taking sodium valproate may cause teratogenic issues in their partner's children, if you see what I mean. Um, so it is it is an odd one. And we'll have to see how this, this works out. I think what we're seeing is the death of valproate really as a drug. I think, um, you know, it's going to be such a headache to work out whether um, a patient will fit the new program it'd be much easier just simply to use something else okay so watch the space because the message from that is there's more coming uh, exactly and in fact to pyramate uh, is mentioned as uh, another one that's under review so we may be seeing it repeated for other drugs next year as well so okay thank you for that um, let's dive into the content for january um well, we're spoilt for choice uh, this month we've got two editorials uh, let's kick off with the one written by our board member, Barbara Minces, uh, what's Barbara talking about? This is um, about the impending demise of a fellow member of the International Society of Drug Bulletins. So um, and this is the Australian, I suppose, equivalent to the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin. Um, it's had an independent national prescribing service or NPS for 25 years now. It was set up to support you know, quality use of medicines, cost effectiveness. It was independent, um, funded by um, government funding. And it's been announced that um, with the closure of government funding, it's um, gonna have to close. And this organization, I mean, it's worth stressing how, you know, how good it was that it, it, that it well, its rationale was promoting quality use of medicines, as you, as you say, and I like their phrase, they talked about judicious, appropriate, safe and effective. Um, but it had quite a broad stream of work, didn't it? It, it worked with both um, health users, health consumers, as they called them, and healthcare professionals uh, to provide information to help decision-making at, at the clinical end, um, data on medicines, academic detailing to improve kind of outcomes. And as you say, the publication, the Australian prescriber came under their umbrella as well. Yeah. Um, so yes, very sad that, that the funding has gone. Um, I suppose in a way it reminds me of the work we used to have here or the organisation we used to have here, the uh, National Prescribing Centre uh, that was based in Liverpool, uh, which, which those of you with long memories may remember evolved from the Medical Advisor Support Centre 
Um, but similar overlap work that both organizations did in their independence in, and improving outcomes for patients. Mm. So a great shame that you know, all that momentum is gone and a loss to the Australian healthcare system. Indeed, and I think you know they've they've estimated that they probably achieved over a billion Australian dollars worth of savings. Um, so uh, it, it is it is a great shame. I think this is often the way that we're seeing with our sort of independent drug bulletins or independent drug systems is that they're increasingly um, no longer being funded by government agency, but actually re- required or expected to work in um, other ways and that makes life very difficult because it's really only the subscription model that that can work if you want to remain truly independent so it's as, as it stands at the moment organization is closing and we're recording this right at the end of 2022 they're due to finish at the end of this this year and the future of australian prescriber although it's on their website it says it, it will be put out to tender for another publisher to take on at the moment, its future is unknown. Yeah, yeah, it's very sad. Okay, well, we'll we'll keep uh, keep watching the situation just to see if anything anything changes. But yes, sad news in in Australia. Okay, let's move on to uh, DTB Select item that's highlighting uh, a safety issue with, um, I guess, a specialist drug, Dupilumab. Um, do you want to say a bit more about this one? Dupilumab is a monoclonal antibody which is licensed for treating moderate to severe atopic dermatitis and asthma. And the MHRA have just raised a safety issue around its causing um, eye disorders such as conjunctivitis, blepharitis, dry eye, and perhaps most worryingly of all, um, but quite rare, ulcerative um, keratitis. And although, I mean, some of these issues or certainly eye issues were known from the clinical trials and when it was first licensed, because there is a warning, or there was a warning in the SPC, um, summary product characteristics saying that you should be alert to eye problems. But this is this is more than that now, is that right? Yes, I think they're um, actually going to, well, the, the EMA, uh, European Medicines Agency, is talking about undertaking an extension study um, to look at those that were participated in the original clinical trial. So this is an additional look at um, this. And I think it's been about almost 500 reports to the MHRA um, up to September 2022 with this problem. And they suggest in the, or the MHRA guidance suggests that there will be further guidance on how to manage patients who develop this problem. But I suppose the other other point of us including it, it, a is to highlight the safety problem. But the other issue is, well, how does that affect primary care? This is a specialist prescribed drug, and I'm assuming you've never prescribed it? No, I mean, exactly right. And I think you've hit the nail on the head here. There is there is a disconnect at the moment um, with a lot of prescribing that goes on in secondary care now. And the moment the IT systems don't link up. So if a patient was to be started on drug like this, um, I would be informed probably through a letter, which might arrive some weeks later. Uh, and what I do with that letter um, is variable. Uh, I know that some practices will actually add that drug to the patient's list. It's quite an involved thing to do because the last thing you want to do is for someone to issue it. That would just 
really make things even more complex and difficult. So you have to make sure that it's being listed on your list of drugs as a hospital only uh, prescription. And that's quite hard to do. It requires um, a little bit of IT knowledge, certainly on EMIS. I don't know whether System 1 or the other systems are easier, but it's certainly something which I don't think is done on every occasion. And of course, it needs to be if we're going to be able to monitor and pick up this sort of issue. So the risk is a, a patient who's on this drug, the practice has not either received the notification or, or hasn't put it onto their system. The patient turns up complaining of a, an eye problem, may just slip through completely unnoticed that this could be anything to do with the drug. Well, absolutely. In fact, they might have gone to the pharmacy first of all and been given a treatment for conjunctivitis and it sort of perhaps got a little bit better and then sort of, you know, they wasn't so they got an appointment to see a GP and of course it might well have been someone like a paramedic who sees them then as on the day and gets further treatment and you could just see you know it takes four four bites at this before the penny drops and someone clocks that it could be an adverse drug reaction. So uh, already in January issue we seem to be heading towards a, a new year's resolution that we'd like improved clinical systems both to stop us prescribing sodium valparate but also to make sure that specialist drugs issued in hospitals can be easily added to the system and not issued from primary care. Sounds good to me, yeah. Okay, we'll put it on this. And also just a quick shout out. Um, I was digging around some of our fellow uh, publications at BMJ and there's a BMJ case reports of a problem with dupilumab and there's also an article in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, both published by BMJ, which also talk about this problem. And I will put links to both these uh, in the notes that accompany this podcast when we publish it. So if, if you want to do further reading, there's, there's, there's more stuff available from BMJ. It sounds good. And I think one of the things that I'm increasingly finding as I get older is when you, when you find something that's not getting better, look at the drugs, you know, ask about drugs or what people are taking, because so often it, you know, the key lies in the drug list. Another theme we'll no doubt pick up. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and then finally, let's bundle the last two things we want to talk about into one. So the other editorial and our main review article. I think in the past we've we've warned um, listeners that they might not want to be eating um, during some of our discussions. This is possibly one of them where you may want to push your food away for a moment if you are eating while you're listening to this. Um, do you want to explain why? Well, I think first of all, we probably have to announce a conflict of interest here, don't we? Okay, is yes, it? fire away. Because um, I'm both a dog and a cat owner, and we're going to talk about uh, Toxicaria or toxicorosis, which is a roundworm infection in dogs, cats, and other animals such as foxes. Um, so, yes, as a dog owner, um, I may have a conflict of interest because what we're talking about here is the issue around this zoonosis and really about how we should be managing it and the use of drugs to treat and worm cats, your pets, basically cats and dogs. And particularly this new. It is a new thing, isn't it? I'm sure we never used to do it when, when I was much younger, but this new idea that you should worm your dogs and cats monthly. And certainly our local vet has been very keen that we should do this. And I guess the point of both the editorial and the other, and I should declare a conflict of interest. Yes, I'm the owner of a beagle. Um, therefore, the worming issue is, is relevant for us as well. Um, but the, the point is that this is at the intersection, isn't it, of, of kind of human health, uh, animal health, 
and sort of I suppose that the planet's health because the concern that or the article and the editorial pick up is are we over treating all our pets for a problem that isn't really a major problem in in the UK of uh, human disease um, and then the excretion of of these parasiticides into the environment and the impact this may be having on other creatures yes and as as andrea tar says in the editorial you know, this is a one health issue um, and I have to say, I was, I mean, it is a fascinating article, um, even if you're not a dog or cat owner. First of all, I was amazed at how few cases of toxicosis actually occurs or, or is, is anyway picked up in humans. Because this is obviously where we are largely worming our pets to prevent the infection in humans, the concern about things like neurotoxicosis, which is where... You know, patients can develop epilepsy and neuropsychological deficits and all kinds of nasty issues. Um, and yet the research of the literature, you know, over 45 years since 1972 to 2017, there were only 106 cases of toxicosis in humans in the UK. And even if you look at serology reports, because you can get a positive serology in, and not have a clinical case of toxicosis, actually we're talking about three positive results a year on average so this it feels like it's it, as a disease in humans it's a very minor problem and yet we are spending millions of pounds in worming our pets and as you say possibly creating enormous issues with invertebrates in the environment as a result and what was Interesting was some of the other research that's gone on. I think there was a, a modelling study from the Netherlands when they looked at the impact of either increasing the amount of uh, dogs that are wormed or actually just getting rid of dog poo. So clearing it up and getting rid of it effectively. And the suggestion was that the biggest impact you can have would actually if dog owners picked up the dog poo and got rid of it rather than worming their dogs. It was a far yeah. bigger impact than worming tablets. Yes, there was a lovely study where they did um, fresh faecal sampling and some poor volunteers picked up over, two, two, I think, 2,400 dog poo samples um, and found about 4% of dogs were infected. But what was fascinating was that regularly wormed dogs, about 2% of them were infected. And those that hadn't been wormed for over a year were still only about 5% infected. The big issue was amongst puppies. So I think where where I think it was interesting was lactating um, dogs and puppies often have a much higher level of infection. Um, and uh, that was perhaps an area to be focused on as well. But you're absolutely right. You know, things like hand washing, clearing up poo, deworming puppies and lactating bitches is probably actually all we need or should be doing um so you know to worm or not interesting so that i think we quoted from the european scientific council companion animal parasites interesting sounding organization which suggests that you should be regularly worming your pets but they are funded by veterinary pharmaceutical companies so it may be that they are slightly biased perhaps um, and certainly a lot of the veterinary agencies in the UK talk more about doing better risk assessment. You know, is your animal likely to be at risk because of its age or the sort of lifestyle it has? Um, and, and consider worming on the basis of that rather than just blindly doing it every month. 
is a good read, but just not over dinner time, perhaps. <laughs> Indeed. And wash your hands before. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, you can find all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, all our podcasts are also available. There's a podcast button at the top of the homepage. Uh, and we'll be publishing uh, our interview with John Dowden, the editor of Australian Prescriber, uh, in the next couple of weeks. And bear in mind that when we recorded this interview with John, we were unaware of the changes that were happening to NPS Medicine Wise and the uncertainty over the future of Australian Prescriber. Uh, and as ever, we're always pleased to receive comments on any of our content, be it print, online or podcasts. And you can let us know what you think by emailing us at dtb at bmj.com. So many thanks for listening to us. And once again, Happy New Year. And we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the February 23 podcast. <laughs>